Father, we thank you as we celebrate this Christmas season that really, Lord, we're, we're doing the same thing now that the Jewish people did thousands of years ago. Thousands of years ago, they waited for their Messiah. And we celebrate that at Christmas time, the day that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, the day that the child was born as the son who would be given. And while they waited for thousands of years for the birth of their Messiah, we now celebrate that birth and we have waited as your followers for a couple thousand years for his return. And Lord, we do. O come, O come, Emmanuel. We long for the day when the trumpet sounds and we're all called home. And I pray, Father, that you would give us that eternal perspective to keep our eyes and our hearts focused on you. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to go back to Luke chapter 2, which uh, was a uh, one of my kids read during uh, the scripture reading. And, but we're going to just pick up in verse 8, right? The first seven verses are Jesus' birth. Verse 8, it says, In the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over the flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Now, I love the shepherds in relation to Jesus' birth because this passage shows us God's love for the most common people in our culture. These shepherds were just living their lives. They, they did not have uh, a glorious job, right? They, they weren't wealthy. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit later about the fact that they were outcasts in society because of what they did, even though what they did was central to the religious system of the Jewish people, they still couldn't participate in the religious system of the Jewish people because of what they did. 
So they were out there doing what they needed to do to survive. I, I mean, picture it. They, they were working at Walmart, right? And there's nothing wrong with working at Walmart. I have worked at Walmart. And if it came down to it, and that's how I put food on the table, I would do it again, right? There's nothing, nothing wrong with, with working at Walmart. But it wasn't the point I'm getting at, right? You don't walk into Walmart and go, man, look at that guy stocking the shelves. Oh, I wish I could do that, right? We don't typically look at Walmart as this glamorous job that we wish we could do. Guess what? You can. Have fun. Right? And, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to put it down. If, if you're working and you're making a living, good for you. Right? There's, there's no bad job in that sense. Um, the picture I'm trying to paint is that they were just doing what they needed to do to survive. They went to work that day or that evening. Right? They're, however... Uh, their alarm went off. There's an ancient alarm system, and I don't know if they used it in Israel, but I love this. So they used to have, you know, the, the, uh, the pillar candles, not the real thick ones, but, you know, kind of like those if they were real candles and not lights. Um, and what they would do is they would, you know, they used to have metal or lead candle holders, and they would know how long the candle would burn, right? So if the candle took eight hours to burn, they knew that if they put a nail in the candle, two-thirds of the way down, that that nail would fall out in about five and a half hours, give or take. So that's how they used to wake themselves up. They'd leave a candle lit with a nail in it, and when the wax melted low enough that the nail fell out, it would clink on the candle stand, and it would wake them up. So however it was, they got up for work that day. They went out there, and they had no idea that they were about to experience a life-changing and eternity-altering grace. They didn't know that. Right? They were visited by the heavenly messengers, they met Jesus, and their lives were never the same again. They came away with a new song of praise in their hearts and on their lips. Now, while none of us are this kind of shepherd today, we can still sing their song. We can sing their song when we have shared their experience. So that gets us to point number, the first one. We are similar in our occupations. These men were engaged in the business of life. They were doing what they felt they needed to do to provide for their families and for themselves. Uh, they were shepherds and they were just busy living their lives. They just got up and went to work. Now I know some of you are retired and for those of us who aren't retired, we are jealous. Um, <laughs> a little bit, a little bit. But even if you're retired, you still get up in the morning and you have things that you plan to accomplish that day, I hope. Um, you can be, my mom's here, so it's, it's more fun to tell stories like this when she's here um, than when she's just watching online. Uh, she, she plans, and she has a good reason for it. My grandparents used to plan one thing a day because it would get them out of the house every day. And so she plans one thing a day. And, and we'll ask her, I'm like, well, what, what are you doing today? Well, I got to go grocery shopping. And then tomorrow, I've got to go do, i got to go to the post office. Well, why don't, why don't you just go to the post office when you go grocery shopping? No, I'll go to the post office tomorrow. <laughs> and I'll go grocery shopping today. Oh, wait, no, I can't go to the post office tomorrow. Tomorrow's movie day. I'll go to the post office on Wednesday. <laughs> we have these conversations. And she's not denying it. She's right there. She's not denying it. <laughs> right? But it, she, she still gets out of bed in the morning and she goes about her life. That's what these guys were doing. They were just busy living their lives, and that can describe most people. 
right? Whether, whether it is we go to work or we're taking care of kids or we're retired and, and we're going to visit the grandkids or we're in school or, right, you know, fill in the blank. Whatever it is, we carry out various duties and we spend the bulk of our days doing that. The bulk of our days laboring, whether that's laboring at a job or laboring uh, just for ourselves. Maybe, maybe you're ill, right? And you're not, you didn't go to work today because you're sitting at home hopped up on NyQuil just waiting to feel better. You know, whatever the case, you're going about your day. Now, some of us, and I know this is nobody in here, and it's certainly not me, have a bad attitude about work. Anybody ever have a bad attitude about work? Thank you for being honest. A couple people raised their hand. I appreciate the honesty. Right? And you're like, oh, you're a pastor. Don't you love your job? I love my job. I absolutely love my job. There are still some days when I wake up and I go, I don't want to do it. I'm, not, I'm just being honest. I'm like, I really don't want to go in the office. I got to do bulletins today. Man, I don't want to fold bulletins. It's been a while since I've complained about bulletins, just in case you're wondering. You know, and, and everybody has those days. So I found a very encouraging verse about work in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 22 through 23, that says, What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart, with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Thanks, Solomon. Right? If you ever, there's two books. If you ever really want to feel better about yourself in some way, read the book of Job. Because whatever it is you're going through probably isn't going through what Job went through. Um, or, right, and I'm not saying that to minimize what anybody's going through. We go through difficulties, and I'm not trying to say that, that that's not doesn't matter or is not important. I'm just saying if you need to feel a little better, go read the book of Job. Or go read the book of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon spends uh, 12 or 14 chapters telling you how pointless life is. Thanks. Until he gets to the end. And he said, this is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. But even there, work is a good thing. We're reminded in 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12, even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. And I praise God for the ability to work. But... If work is all there was to life, how tragic would that be? Far too many people find their identity in their job. Now, I've admitted this to you before. There was a time in my quote-unquote career, I hate using that phrase, but um, as a pastor, because I've been doing this for 19 years now, I passed the 19-year mark in October, and for 19 years, I've been a pastor, and uh, there was a time when it was who I was, right? I, I wasn't a child of God. I was a pastor. I wasn't a follower of Christ. I was a pastor. That doesn't mean I wasn't a follower of Christ. I was still saved. But I, I, you get my idea there, because I made my identity my job. And then so if something went wrong at the church... It wasn't, right, because we all know nothing ever goes wrong at church, right? Church is always fun and pleasant and rainbows and coffee cakes and, no, that's not how church works. We know better. But when something would happen at the church, it wasn't like a bad day at work. It was 
devastating to my identity. And so the Lord had to teach me to separate those things because work is not all there is. My relationship with Christ is much more important than what I do, even though I love what I do. But here's the point. They just went to work. Right? It was just another day for them. And they were in, we have similarity to them in our sinfulness. That's point two. These men were shepherds. As such, they were social outcasts. Their work kept them away from the temple for weeks at a time, and the nature of their work caused them to be ceremonially unclean. As they moved about the country, tending to their flocks, they were often accused of being thieves. Shepherds were considered to be unreliable and were not allowed to give testimony in court. Now, could you imagine that? You witnessed a crime. And, you know, maybe you, you were walking down <clears throat> Main Street here in Gunnison and you see masked men coming out of one of the banks and they've got, you know, the, 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 what, the cartoon bag of money that's got the money sign on the bag, right? And they get into their getaway car and they drive away and you're like, I saw it. I got the license plate number, right? I saw all of it. And the police show up and they go, okay, we need witnesses. I saw it. I saw it. I saw it all. What do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a rancher. <laughs> Can't believe a thing you say. Go away. That's what they would do to them. They could see it. Be an eyewitness to something. And nobody would listen. Which actually makes the fact that the angels appeared to the shepherds so much more valid when we talk about the, the uh, reliability of Scripture. Just like Jesus, after his resurrection, the first people he appeared to were women. At the time, women weren't allowed to give testimony in court either. So at his birth, the first people, as far as we know, besides Mary and Joseph, who know about it, are shepherds. People that nobody would believe. And the first, after his resurrection, the first people to see him were women. Again, people who in that society... No one would believe. So if it wasn't true, right? If they made it up, if it was a, a tall tale or a myth, they wouldn't have said it was shepherds. They would have said these angels appeared in the temple to the high priest. And the high priest went to Bethlehem and found the Messiah. That's the story they would tell, but it, that's not what happened. This is what actually happened. So this is the story they tell. Now, as these men were typically dirty, they were defiled based on their work, and even though the work they were doing supported the religious work of the temple, they were not allowed to participate in it. And because of their uncleanliness, the priesthood, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, nobody would talk to them. They wouldn't touch them. None of it. So they were completely alienated from the promises of God according to Israel's religious system, which meant they were destined for destruction or condemnation like we would, like we would be apart from Christ. Now, while none of us are that type of shepherd, we are all defiled sinners in the eyes of God. It's Christmas. I want you to feel good. Defiled sinners. Wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, as Revelation 3 tells us. And I only say it because it's true. 
But it's because of recognizing ourselves in that state that we can come to the place of having hope. I would like you to follow me, if you would, over to Romans chapter 3. We're going to look at a, a, a pretty big chunk, and we're going to look at it, I hope, fairly quickly. But I just thought it would be easier to turn there than to try to put it in my notes. Romans chapter 3, we're going to pick up in verse 9. And one of the things that I love about the Bible is so often, before we're given the good news, we're given the bad news. Because the good news is only really good if the bad news is really bad. Right? Picture, you know, you're outside on a beautiful sunny day like it is today. And you go out and you turn your flashlight on. Your flashlight means nothing. Now picture yourself lost in a forest in the middle of the night. And there's a new moon. And the stars are, are, are veiled because of, of clouds and whatnot. And then you go, oh, I've got a flashlight. And your flashlight's really good. That's the good news. So Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one good. No one does good, not even one. Gee, Paul, tell us what you think. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That would be the bad news, because that describes every person, Jew or Gentile, white, black, Asian, Hispanic, tall, short, fat, skinny, I don't care, every single person on earth apart from Christ. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So, right, we're all sinners. And then everybody, apart from Christ, is under the law, but unfortunately, the law can do absolutely nothing for us, nor can we, no matter how good we are in attempting to keep the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin, right? Hopeless. And I bring this up because that was the shepherds. Hopeless. They went to work, they got their paycheck, they went home. If they were married... Couldn't go anywhere near their wives or their families until they were ceremonial, ceremonially cleansed. And the ceremonial cleansing at that time, depending on what you were defiled, could either take a day or up to a week uh, if you were a man. And so he might get one day off a week. And so he goes home. And his wife says, yeah, you can't, you can't come in the house. You can't hug the kids until you go through the cleansing, the, the purification rites so that you would be ceremonially clean again. Otherwise, we'll all be ceremonially unclean. But he's only got one day off. 
So what would be the point? He would just leave. Or he'd have to sit outside. Right? Hopeless. And that's all of us. But then in verse 21 is the word but. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That is where things change. That is where the direction flips. But God showed us his righteousness. And he did that, right? He told us through the law and prophets that it was coming, but then showed us the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And it doesn't matter who you are because we've all sinned. That's what verse 23 says. But all who believe are justified by his grace. That word justified is a legal term. You ever watch one of them legal programs? Uh, I, I don't know, Law and Order or something like that. And sometimes they get the bad guy and the bad guy goes to jail. But sometimes you get to the end of the court case and the person stands up and, you know, have, we, have you reached a, a verdict? And says, yes, we the jury have reached a verdict. We the jury find so-and-so not guilty. Justified. That's what it means. When we stand before God in Christ clothed in his righteousness, forgiven of our sins. We stand before the judge and we have a prosecuting attorney, an accuser, a prosecuting attorney, a prosecuting attorney, an accuser of the brethren, the devil, and he'll stand up and he'll lay the charges out. And Jesus will stand up and say, Dad, I took care of that. And God being judge, jury, and executioner, because he's God, will then look at us in his son and proclaim not guilty. And what's so beautiful about that is we are guilty. I'm guilty. You are too. We're all sinners. And the Bible says very plainly in the book of Hebrews, it's a fearful thing. To fall into the hands of the living God. But when we jump into the hands of the living God through Jesus Christ, when the living God scoops us up out of our sin, out of our shame, out of the muck and the mire and the filthiness and the uncleanliness of what we are apart from Christ, when he pulls us out of that, and though your sins be as scarlet, I will make them white as snow, God said, casting them as far as the east is from the west. In that moment, we are justified. We are not guilty. And it's a gift of his grace through the redemption in Jesus Christ, through the sacrificial, substitutionary sacrificial gift of his blood that we receive by faith. So that he could be just because he had to punish sin. 
But because he didn't want to punish us, he wanted to justify us. He wanted to declare us not guilty. These men didn't have that. Yet. Yet. Number three, we are similar in our opportunities. Even though these men were social outcasts, even though they were considered defiled by organized religion, even though they were the kind of men you would never trust with anything of value, these were the very men who received the good news of our Savior's birth. The shepherds received an invitation from heaven to go meet the Savior. They accepted that invitation and they were saved. Religion had no place for them. Society had no place for them. But God, in his love and grace, had a place for them in his family and in his kingdom. And we have a similar opportunity. The gospel, the good news of our salvation has been given to us just as it was to them. And even though, I don't, I don't know about you, but I know when I got saved, there weren't angels. I wasn't in a field. There wasn't a song, right? None of that happened. I heard the gospel. The Holy Spirit grabbed a hold of my heart and I surrendered. But the same thing happened. Because he loves us in spite of our sin. Romans 5.8 reminds us that God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. And then the invitation for us to come to Jesus has been extended. And if we will come to him, believing on him by faith, we will be saved. This was the opportunity they had. And we read about it in wonderful other places in scripture like John 1. Verses 9 through 13, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, but his people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Romans 10, 8 through 13. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, right? Proclaimed, not guilty. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now some people have taken this verse wildly out of context. And they say that when you speak the word of faith that was talked about up in verse 8, that then God is required to bestow his riches upon you, and they reference that as material wealth. That's not what this passage is saying. The word of faith that we proclaim is our belief in Jesus Christ. When you believe in the heart, and you confess with the mouth, you are saved. And the riches that he bestows upon us are his grace and forgiveness and mercy and eternal life. These shepherds, I just want you to think about what this would have looked like because they could have ignored the message. 
right? And now I'm, I'm saying that it would have been difficult. Don't get me wrong. You're sitting in the field. You're talking to your friend Bill. The sheep are doing fine. They're off munching on the grass, right? There's no wolves about. You just had a nice dinner of whatever it is you made to eat while you were out there. Lamb chops, nice little light, uh, MLT, a mutton lettuce and tomato sandwich. Ooh, when the mutton's nice and tender. Um, sorry, movie reference. Uh, um, but you get this, this, they're right there just hanging out. And all of a sudden, this bright light. Hey! And then angels. And you know what? The angels are like, hey, we got something to tell you. Glory to God in the highest. And the shepherds are just like, wow. Right? So they see all this. They have this amazing experience. And, you know, there's Phil and Bob sitting out there in the field. And, yeah, Phil looks over at Bob and goes, hey, you want to go see what happened? And Bob goes, no, not really. I mean, yeah, that was cool. But, yeah, my stomach's upset. I don't think I cut the mutton well enough. Or whatever it might be. Right? I just, I don't feel like it. Or it sounds like a lot of work. Or, or what if we go there and it's not everything I expect, which is what we talked about last week, an unexpected Messiah. Or what if we go there and he rejects us like everybody else rejects us? Or, or what if we can't find it? Or, 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 or how many excuses do people make over and over and over and over and over again to not come to Christ? Think about it. And I know most of you fairly well, and, and, or some of you I know really well, and, and I think you're all saved, and if you're not, we should talk about that, because that's important. There's nothing more important to Not even proper English. But the point I'm getting at is look at the excuses. I, you know, I would come to Christ, but I just, I just don't have time to go to church every week. Okay. And that's not meant as a dig on anyone who's not here, because right, most of our church is gone today, but that's okay. Or, I, you know, I, I would come to Christ, but, and I've heard people say that, I would have to change my life. No, duh. Have you seen your life? That would be a positive step. Or I would, I would come to Christ, but I don't want to be like one of those fanatics. And you don't want to come to Christ. Because to come to Christ is a rebellion. It's a rebellion against the world. Uh, the movie Jesus Revolution. You guys, a lot of you guys saw that. We watched it here on movie night. If you haven't seen it, you should watch it. In that movie, there was a comment that was made about the hippies. That they were looking for all the right things in all the wrong places. What did the hippies want? They wanted love. They wanted acceptance. They wanted community. They wanted to rebel against a system that wasn't working. Well, guess what? That's exactly what Jesus came to do. Now, he fulfilled that system. But when a person comes to Christ, they are rebelling against a system that doesn't work. And I'm not talking about, you know, let's form a militia and overthrow the government. I am not talking about that. Don't do that. It's probably not going to go well. Um, what I am talking about is the world's system doesn't work. Right? Most of modern psychology doesn't work. And I'm not bashing modern psychology. I love good psychology. I truly do. I have had good therapists. I've read amazing books. But what I'm talking about is pop psychology, Oprah psychology, right? Where if you just, you know, you just do whatever you want to do and, and live however you want to live and be happy and follow your heart and everything will be okay. No, it won't. That's not what I'm talking about. 
But the world system tells you to do this, and it's not working for the world. The deception of our own hearts tells us to live this way, and it doesn't work for us. Maybe the government, maybe modern education. I mean, you pick the system you want to rebel against. You accept Christ, you will likely be rebelling against that system. I mean, nobody thinks about it that way. Oh, if I come to Christ, I have to conform. Yeah, you're going to be conformed to the image of God. That's horrible. No, it's awesome. But instead of conforming to the world, right, one of my favorite things is, is you ever see them, um, and I'm not, I'm really, I'm not trying to put anybody down. I'm not trying to judge anybody. That's not me. Um, but one of my favorite things, I remember with this when I was in school, many of you I'm sure do as well, um, and, and you see it all the time. You see the clicks of all the people dressed alike, right? And, and maybe it's the girls um, that are kind of like, uh, I grew up in California, they were the Valley Girls, right? And they all had the same kind of skirt, the same kind of shoes, the same kind of shirt, the same kind of hairdo. They all talked the same. They all did their makeup the same. And what was their claim? Well, we do this so we can be different. Uh-uh. Right? Or you see it there. You see it with the, the, the quote-unquote, the punk rockers or the goth crowd or, or the whatever. Right? There's always people that they're, they're trying to be different from the world. So in order to be different, we're trying to be different from everybody else. So in order to be different from everybody else, they're going to be just like all these people over here. I, I don't know. Logic dictates that that's not the proper way to do it. You want to be different. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You want, to, you want to rebel? Follow Jesus. Right? So they could have listened and not gone to find him. They could have found him and not believed in him. And we all have the same opportunity, and many of us have made the same excuses. Now, I know most of us have taken it. Most of us have called on the name of the Lord and been saved, believing in his name and becoming his children. But if there is anyone who hasn't, whether you're here today, whether you're listening online, or you listen to this recording some other time, don't wait. My best guess is you're not going to get angels appearing to you in the sky to give you another opportunity. Yesterday we, we had a service here for a, a, a person, and, and you know, it was one of my favorite things to correct myself on. We would say she was a believer. No, she's more of a believer now than she ever has been in the past, right? Because the moment you leave here, you're there when you're a follower of Christ. But, but this, this woman who passed away, she sat down in her chair and fell asleep. And that was that. And how many people think, well, I'll repent on my deathbed. What, what if you sit down in a chair and fall asleep and you don't have that time? What if it's a heart attack? We were talking about uh, the guy who was on Friends. Anybody remember Friends? Matthew Perry, he recently passed away. Um, and from what I understood, he actually gave his life to Christ in the latter years of his life. He was a major drug addict and all kinds of other stuff. Um, and what it boiled down to is even though he was free of all that, he was not free of the consequences of it. Um, he had a heart attack, and he was in his hot tub when he had a heart attack, and he drowned. No deathbed confessions. No last-minute angels. Done. I'm not saying that to scare anybody, but that's the way it goes. And so the person says, well, I'm going to wait. Don't do that. Don't do that. 
Come to Christ now. Because I know, as a follower of Christ, even though I'm far from perfect, I make a lot of mistakes, that if it was that, right? I walk outside, I slip on ice, I crack my head open, and it's done. Okay. My family will get my life insurance and I'll be at home. Don't mourn me. I'm going to be just fine. Be sad for yourselves because you won't have my joyous presence anymore. <laughs> See, I can't even say that with a straight face. But, um, right? but don't mourn me. I'm okay. But the only way I know that, the only way I have that confidence, the only way I have that hope is because I know Christ. I have believed in my heart and confessed with my mouth, and he has saved me. He has given me that gift of grace. And when we receive that, like the shepherds, and this is point number the fourth one, we are similar in being new. When they saw it, right, this is in verse 17, or sorry, verse 16, they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in their heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. The shepherds met Jesus. They were saved, and they were changed forever. And as they went back to their sheep... What did they do? They told everybody that they, who they met what they had heard, what they had seen, what the Lord had done for them. They had an experience and they shared it with everyone. Now, they did go back to their lives. You know, unless, unless you, your, your particular career or your daily occupation is, is absolutely sinful, getting saved doesn't mean you have to quit your job or change careers. Uh, you know, if you're currently a mob enforcer and, and you, you kill people for a living, uh, you get saved, you might want to turn yourself in uh, and turn that around, right? You know, don't go back to work on Monday. That's all I'm saying. But, you, you know, whatever, if, if it's not that, right, they just went back to work. But they went back changed forever. They went back, they told everybody, and it was awesome. But as they returned to their lives... They had a new life, a new song, a new purpose, a new power, and a new promise. They were altered forever by that one encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, my dear brothers and sisters, is how it works. I had one encounter with Jesus Christ that changed my life forever. Now, I have had many encounters with him since, and I praise God for that. But I had one encounter with him that changed my life. So the first thing is he makes us new. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He gives us a new song. Psalm 40, verse 1 through 3. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. He gives us a new purpose. 
2 Corinthians 5.18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. When the shepherds were going and telling everybody what happened, right? that's what we're to do. Hey, Jesus saved me, he'll do the same for you. He loves me, he loves you. He forgave me, he'll forgive you. He healed me, he'll heal you. That's our ministry. That doesn't mean you have to be a pastor or an evangelist or anything like that. It just means if you're a follower of Christ, you should be telling the world about what he's done for you. Now he gives us the power for this purpose. Acts 1.8, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And I absolutely love that. When your kids were small, did you ever ask your child to do something that you knew they couldn't do and then tell them, I'm not going to help you do it? Anybody do that? I mean, that'd be kind of mean, right? I don't think I ever did that. <laughs> My wife's shaking her head no. Just had to check with the boss. Uh, I don't think I ever did that. You know, hey, kid, go change the oil in the car. What? Go change the oil. I'm four. I don't care. Get a wrench, change the oil. You wouldn't do that. I hope. And God says, I want you to go tell the world about being reconciled to me through my son. Well, we can't do that by ourselves. And so he said, all right, I'm going to ask you to do this, but I'm going to equip you and I'm going to empower you to do it. We're going to talk about that in a couple weeks, very specifically. I'm way ahead on my sermon prep, just so you know. Um, but he says, yes, I want you to do this. Now here is the ability and here is the strength to do it. And whether or not you know it, he did put that strength in liquid form. I'm telling you, if the Holy Spirit has not infused coffee, I don't know what has, because coffee is amazing. Um, but then he gives us a new promise for the future. John 14, 1 through 3, this was read at the, the memorial yesterday. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have, not, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. What a beautiful promise. Jesus said, yeah, I gotta go. But if you believe in me, Understand this. My dad's got a big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. And a big, big table with lots and lots of food. And a big, big yard where we can play football. It's a big, big house. That's my father's house. That poetic genius from the band Audio Adrenaline back in the early 90s. But it's true. And he says, so I'm going to go there and I'm going to get your room ready. And I'm not going to tell you that I'm going to do that as a joke. I'm going to tell you I'm doing that because then I'm going to come back and get you that where I am, you may be also. A new promise. As we close, this, my dear brothers and sisters, is the beauty of Christmas. On the day our king was born, the day light and hope entered the world, the shepherds were given a new opportunity. 
that led to everything in their lives being new. They went back to work or their families or their lives, but they did so as new creations in Christ with a new song, a new purpose, a new power, and a new promise. And this is the hope of Christmas. It was consummated on Easter when Jesus died for our sins and rose again, but the invitation is the same today. If you are a believer in Jesus, then celebrate him this Christmas. If you are not a believer in Jesus, then let him give you the greatest gift you will ever receive. Believe in him, turning from your sin, and he will forgive you, receive you, adopt you, and make you new. He'll give you the opportunity to live the life he always intended for you and for you to become the person he created you to be. That's the hope of Christmas. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your great love and grace, for your mercy and your kindness. And thank you that today we, well, as we should every day, but today we really get to celebrate our Savior as we focus on him this Christmas season. And Father, I pray that for your grace, help us to enjoy all the fun things about Christmas, the big meals and, and the presents and the Grinch cartoons and all of that stuff. But all of it, Lord, with a heart that's focused on you and a reminder of what you've done for us. I pray that you would be glorified in our lives in Jesus' name. Amen.